This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. Saturday Night Fever, that's what's going on here, isn't it? I always want to spend my Saturday nights with you, Jeff. It's been a long-term aspiration. (laughs) My wife is watching the telly. Does she have programmes that she will watch that you won't? Yes, yes. Quite a lot of period dramas. What's that thing called? Um, Bridgerton. And does that apply to you in the snooker, or is she also a snooker fan? Funnily enough, she's not much of a snooker fan, actually. So anyway, so I said I'm spending the Saturday night with Jeff, and we've been sitting here waiting for the cop closing plenary to begin and the closing plenary was due to begin at 8 Egyptian time, which was 6 our time. And it, we're now at 9.42 our time. And it's not due to begin now till 10. And it's being pushed back hour by hour. I feel sorry for whoever's job it is to lock up that conference centre. I hope they booked sort of extra days. Is that how it works? You have them on a pencil just in case? Well, I don't know, really. There'll be people there waiting to stack chairs. These things always go into overtime, but I think this might go into overtime, overtime. That sounds positive then, doesn't it? I don't think I've talked to you since I came back. No, I? so so um, we've done a bit of texting and we, and we spoke while you yeah. were away. It's It just seems to be all work for you. If that was me, I'd be thinking, oh, what about the famous Sham nightlife? I could go to a phone party or I'd be out on a banana boat. Every time I spoke to you, you're meeting with somebody, you're, you're, you're going to something. It was an intense few days. When you're there, what yeah. what are you doing? Is it panels? Is it individual meetings? If so, who I are mean, those meetings What we did with? when we were there was had lots and lots of meetings with like other different countries, John Kerry, Xi Jinping, the Chinese uh, envoy, um Franz Timmermans uh the EU who's the EU representative and the vice president of the commission uh who was there um amazing indigenous women who'd come from Brazil to talk about their experiences so I suppose partly what I was trying to do was at the margins push the process in a certain direction but I mean it is at the margins because we're in opposition but also start to build alliances with like-minded countries. So we've got this 2030 Clean Power Pledge, which is, you know, all of our... Oh, you you mentioned Denmark last week, I think. Yeah, I I met the Danish representative. Um, I also met the Portuguese minister, uh, the Dutch minister, my Spanish colleague, Teresa Ribeiro, who's actually, who's a deputy prime minister now, but was the climate minister when I was there in 2008 to 10. So... Talk to Todd Stern, who was the US climate envoy. This is just like a long list of people, but but it's 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 partly staying engaged with the process because these processes are fiendishly complicated, but also also quite learning stuff from people about things that other countries are doing, whether it's on 
rooftop solar the 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 guy from the netherlands was talking to me about rooftop solar and what they were doing in that or talking to the i talked to allstead which is the big danish 50.1 percent state-owned wind energy company about our plans for gb energy so so it was incredibly useful in that it was like incredibly compressed and incredibly intense that's that's Um, the sense i got from you while you were there and and did you i know you were talking last week about being in was it the British Pavilion? Yes. Which conjures up almost a David Niven-like image of you in a linen suit. It does. With a copy of The Telegraph. I think I did have a linen suit, actually. Did you? Yes. I didn't have a copy of The Daily Telegraph. That was I was mi- missing out on that, actually. But um, did, did you get much of a sense of what the perception is like at the COP of, of the UK at the moment? I think people care about what the UK think. They had noticed that Sunak was not going and then going. There was some awareness of that then. Yeah, I think there's a sort of admiration for what Alok Sharma has done, but there's a sense of sort of hesitant UK leadership in government. And as we sit on Saturday night, I think probably there will be an agreement. There's been progress on this issue of loss and damage, which is how to help poorer countries that are on the absolute front line of the climate crisis. We discussed this last week and are facing the worst effects of, of climate change uh, now um, and there has been progress on loss and damage there is clearly the whole issue of keeping 1.5 degrees alive was has dominated since glasgow and indeed before glasgow and glasgow agreed that we'd come back in the year's time and see what we need to do and i'm afraid this cop looks like it's just going to agree we're going to come back in another year's time there is due to be what they call a global stop take in 2023 but i'm afraid the can is sort of being kicked down the road mm. on 1.5 basically we know that global emissions have to halve broadly by 2030, and at the moment they're still probably rising. So we're just way off where we need to be. And this stock, this global stock take is going to have to be serious next year. And then thirdly, fossil fuels, which in a way is the issue in the background of all of this, because it is our use of fossil fuels that is driving the climate crisis. There's obviously a lot of argy-bargy going on about fossil fuels and the language on fossil fuels and should it just be on coal or other fossil fuels. And that seems to be, as far as one can tell from outside the negotiations, what is dominating the discussions. I mean, my overall feeling, I think I said this last week, is at one level, it's incredibly serious and difficult and bad when we're heading for 2.8 degrees or somewhere between 2.5 and 2.8 degrees, depending on what countries that end up doing. Yet at the same time, I sort of have feel a reason for hope because I must have said this last week, but it's cheaper to save the planet than destroy it. In other words, the cost of renewables are now less for most countries than uh, new fossil fuels. And, and, and that is a massive change from where we were 10 years ago. Green is not the more expensive choice, it's the cheaper choice. And so I thought that's what we could talk about this week, which is in a way taking a step back from the detail of what's agreed in the negotiations, but to talk about fossil fuels and the role of fossil fuels. So you've uh, collected some conversations from COP for us. Two from COP and one not from COP. The first conversation is with the brilliantly named, and I wanted him on because he's a brilliant analyst, but also because I thought you'd love his name, Kingsmill Bond. I mentioned, I can tell you, I mentioned Kingsmill Bond to John Kerry and John Kerry, I said, have you seen this work by Kingsmill Bond? And he said, no, I haven't. And I said, he's at something called the Rocky Mountain Institute. Kingsmill told me that after meeting John Kerry, asked for his papers. Wow. So you should be Kingsmill Bond's agent or publicist. I am. I tried to draw Kingsmill in on his name and how it had affected his life, but he wasn't really, he was more interested in talking about serious analytics. What, what a great shame. Then we're talking, we, we're, we're playing an interview I recorded at COP with Sapora Berman, um, who is the founder uh, of something called the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, so this is the idea that uh, we need to stop using new fossil fuels and eventually phase them out. And she'll be talking about that idea and what the basis for it is. And then we'll be talking to Mohammed Adal from PowerShift Africa just about how it looks from the perspective of the African continent, the whole debate about fossil fuels and the use of fossil fuels and renewables uh, and so on. I should also apologise in advance, Jeff, because not only are you not there, but the sound quality despite Emma and Rachel's efforts, is probably not what it could be. Why couldn't you have done it in the British Pavilion with the gentle clinking of teacups? 
There is quite a lot of lo- noise going on at COP, but but I sort of should apologise to our listeners. Normal service will be resumed. Em- Emma's a genius week. with this st- stuff. Emma though. is a genius, uh, but I sort of felt bad. You know, I kind of felt bad, but then I couldn't like ask her to re- re-record the interview. So, <laughs> you know, uh, I just felt like a doofus, really. So, do you have a reason to be cheerful? Well, look, my reason to be cheerful is, honestly, I may have said this last week, but I think it bears repeating – the number of people who came up to me to say they were podcast listeners, honestly, it would have gladdened your heart. It's quite a lot of where's Jeff? Yes, yeah, it's a question that I've been uh, asking myself. Yeah, indeed, you did. You asked last week, yes. actually. Uh, um, uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? I got to uh, I got to the cinema for the first time in ages the other night. Yeah. I went to see that film Triangle of Sadness. Have you heard about it? No. It's Ruben Ustland, I think, is the director who did a film called Force Majeure. Did you ever see that about the family on the skiing holiday with the avalanche? Yes. And then he did a film called The Square, um, which was set in the art world, which I, I loved for the most part and then found parts of it extremely frustrating. And this new one is fantastic. It's about some influencers. But I mean, it's difficult to say what it's about, but it's about some influencers who are invited on uh, an extreme luxury cruise on a yacht for the super rich. But really it's about the class system and hierarchies and wow. where power lies. There's a lot of metaphors in it. But but if that sounds heavy, it's just really properly funny. But I will warn you, there there is the the single most grotesque vomiting scene I have ever seen on screen. So if you're not good with that kind of thing, Sarah has a phobia, so she she will never be able to watch that film, even though she'd love it otherwise. But it's uh, it's tremendous. I, I recommend it. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So to start our conversation, perhaps slightly confusingly, this is after I've come back from COP and the next two interviews were done at COP. I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Kings Mill Bond, who is an energy strategist at the Rocky Mountain Institute. Thank you for joining us and i should say that i've been incredibly impressed by your work over the past few months i heard, first heard you on another podcast the vaults podcast with dave roberts and i was at cop and and i was definitely i would say pushing the king's mill agenda including with u.s climate uh, envoy john kerry who who i gather has been in touch asking for your slide deck <laughs> yes yeah, surprisingly i have to say king's mill and i i'm sure you've had this for the whole your whole life most people's reaction when i first mention you is about your name and they immediately think James Bond. <laughs> well, I hope we're here to talk about um, climate. We are, climate. we are, I promise. Anyway, it's, um, it's just a family name. Look, I mean, in, in fairness, some of the ideas that we've been putting forward, it's with all due respect to myself, they're not my ideas. You know, Amory Lovins has been making these arguments at the Rocky Mountain Institute for almost 40 years. The, the point simply is that now the time is extremely ripe for these ideas to come to fruition because of the very rapid falling costs, the very rapid rise in growth of these technologies. That, that's why it's interesting. Tell us about the Rocky Mountain Institute. So, so the Rocky Mountain Institute is an American energy think tank. It was set up 40 years ago, as I say, by, by the brilliant Amory Lovins in modern terms to help speed up the energy transition. So just to sort of, in a way, orient the whole conversation that we're going to be having on the podcast this week... Talk to us about where you see, just sort of big picture summary, where you see kind of the the race, if you like, between fossil fuels and renewables and where that is going. Sure. So the, the big picture summary is that the the last decade has seen an extraordinary collapse in the cost of key renewable energy technologies and solar and wind and batteries. And at the same time, spectacular exponential growth of those technologies. So that two things have happened. First of all, they've got big enough to matter. And secondly, they've fallen into the same price bracket or below the price bracket of competing fossil fuels. So so that's kind of what's happened in the last decade. And then you kind of get this pivot point around 2019, where you get a peak of the fossil fuel system. And now this decade to come will really be the pivot decade where all this stuff is deployed at very large scale and and where it becomes increasingly obvious that the the peak of the fossil fuel system is behind us that's a kind of that's a very big picture story of, of what's going on here and one thing that when i saw your presentation i was incredibly impressed by was you know this just a scale of falls in the cost of renewable technology so back in about 2012 so a decade ago solar would have cost you about 300 dollars per megawatt hour so in the uk terms it's about 30p 
per kilowatt hour. And now the wholesale cost has fallen to about $40 per megawatt hour. So again, in UK terms, about 4p per kilowatt hour. So a collapse in, in the price of, of um, solar. But, but also, you know, batteries. Batteries has gone from $1,000 per kilowatt to about $200. Wind has gone from $200 to about 40 as well. So that collapse, as I say, kind of underpins the opportunity that's now being unleashed. And I think I'm right in saying that for 90% of the world now, and correct me if I go wrong here, new renewables are cheaper than new fossil fuels. And for 50% of the world, new renewables are cheaper than existing fossil fuels. Is that right? Yeah, both those statistics come from Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And in fact, actually, of course, since they did their analysis, uh, we've had uh, Putin's war and the cost of fossils has gone up. Um, so it's going to be close on 100% now. Um, and when it comes to new versus existing, it's going to be considerably higher than half the world. All of this made me very cheerful. And I confess, kept me very cheerful during the COP and, and ever since I've seen your analysis. Just before we get into the looking to the future, this hasn't happened like by magic, has it? Just explain why we've seen these massive cost falls. So this has been going on, as, as you point out, for decades. The brilliant Oxford professor Doyne Farmer and, and his team uh, analysed what's happened to solar, for example, over the last 40 years. And the price used to be well over $1,000 per megawatt hour. And then what happened is a series of, of governments and countries put serious amounts of money into development of the technology. So you know, the United States, Japan, Germany put a lot of money into the development of solar and and wind. And, and what has happened is these technologies have got onto what is called learning curves. We're kind of familiar with learning curves from the internet and microchips, but this has happened in energy as well. So every time you double the deployment of solar, the costs fall by about 20%. Wow. Has that been consistently true? That's been true now for about 40 years. And, wow. and, and incredibly enough, solar has been doubling in its deployment every two to three years. And we've now just about got to a position where it's really significant. It's now 3% of global electricity generation. So you can do the math, 3, 6, 12, 24, 48, you know, 96. There we go. We're five doublings away from solar supplying all of the global electricity. Now, again, clearly that's not exactly how it's going to play out. But the point simply is that this technology has been growing extremely rapidly as a result of its cost falls. And that has the capacity to change the world very dramatically. I heard you describe it on the Dave Roberts Volts podcast in a very compelling way, which is we used to, when we were trying to make the renewable transition, sort of push water uphill. And now we just need to let the water flow downhill and remove the blockages. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, so essentially, 30 years ago, we solved the technology problems. A decade ago, we solved the economics. Now, in fact, the kind of market forces will naturally propel the continued deployment of these technologies because they're cheaper and better and local and clean, all that stuff. And in fact, if you're looking at barriers to change and impediments to change, it's increasingly the kind of the inertia of the old system and the incumbency which are holding back change. So this, in fact, now is the great challenge. The The transition is moving downhill. We have gravity or economics on our side. And and in, and the role then of of politicians, I would suggest, well, with all due respect to yourself, the role of politicians surely is to remove those roadblocks and allow the water to flow downhill or the water of opportunity. You also make comparisons to other technological change, like the horse to the car and others. Would you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So one of the slightly strange aspects about looking at this um, energy transition is that you have a lot of very shrill fossil fuel advocates who say, well, it can't be done. But you don't have to look terribly far back in, in, in technology history or energy history to see uh, dozens of examples of uh, really quite rapid shifts going on. So, I mean, you mentioned, you know, the horse to the car, or you can think in the UK about the shift in the 1960s, actually, from coal-based heating to gas-based heating, or you can think about the shift from gas-based lighting to electricity after about 1910. And you get a very clear pattern in, you know, when you stand back and look at this stuff, you kind of get X-shaped pattern. The, the new grows quickly and then the old declines quickly. But, but when you look in, in very close detail at the kind of moment of transition, which is, as it were, our 2019, you see a slightly different um, story, which is you kind of you get a, a peak, a plateau and then a decline. So 
the the kind of framing that we would suggest for this transition is we have a peak in about 2019 and going to kind of plateau for a few years where you get a battle between the rise of the new and the kind of desperate attempt of the old stuff to cling on for a while and and then eventually break through all the log jams and then you get this spectacular uh, x-type surge of of the new stuff so that's what we should expect and to give you kind of a couple of rules of thumb um peak horse demand is 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 kind of when cars were about three percent of deployment it's completely normal for the old system to peak in its pomp and its glory and at the height of its power just as the new stuff is ramping up its exponential growth curves we're about to talk in the, on the podcast to Sapora Berman from the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty and Mohammed Adal from PowerShift Africa. I guess one of the other barriers I think that they might cite to the kind of transition you're talking about is is power, frankly. Is fossil fuel companies making the case for subsidies, for tax breaks, for all kinds of things to, to keep them cost competitive with renewables and that's what then leads them on to the so-called supply side agenda so the this is the argument that countries shouldn't be granting new fossil fuel licenses how do you see this interaction of the demand side which in a sense is what you've been talking about and this supply side yeah i mean i think the work being done by uh Berman and the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty is very important the idea of paying subsidies to maintain the fossil fuel system is really quite bizarre because more than the entire profit of the fossil fuel system is being effectively paid out in subsidy for untaxed externality costs that is to say pollution and global warming costs so already subsidizing this industry massively to give further tax breaks is madness when it comes to those who are seeking to prevent and block change, of course, as, as we both know, this has been going on for decades. The fossil fuel systems have been trying to prevent and block change. And the reason why is very obvious. They're generating these enormous rents, they're called, enormous amounts of free money. This year, it's going to be $2,000 billion. And most years, it's about $1,000 billion. That's a lot of money to spend on lobbying. And as a result, you know, they're constantly seeking to circumvent and prevent change. But fortunately, the combination of the work that people like Sipora are doing and the very economics of what's happening is just consistently, continuously undermining uh, their position. I'll tell you an amusing story. I had a conversation with um, some fossil fuel advocates a couple of days ago, and they were trying to say, look, you know, listen, kid, you're just an idealist and we're the realists. You know, we put real money on the line to build our fossil fuel uh, system. You don't know what you're talking about. You're just a green idealist. And, and actually, the, the sad reality is that they are now the idealists and we are the realists, um, in contrast to a decade ago. And now, actually, the people who are saying, look, you know, you've got this cheap soda, you've got this cheap wind, you've got this cheap batteries, you've got this cheap hydrogen coming along, these cheap new solutions. You know, we're just going to do that. And, and um, you guys are going to be left high and dry. A very last question. What should governments be doing? So, so I think this increasingly is the story now at COP. The story is shifting from pain to gain. That is to say, it used to be the question of, wow, we have this collective problem. We all have to work together and it's going to be painful, but we all have to support each other through this difficult process. And and then it's painful. Now, increasingly, people are realizing that actually the jobs, the opportunity, the money, the growth lie in deploying into these growing new energy technologies. And increasingly, I think that's what's happening there's a very new story emerging from COP that now is your chance to grab this opportunity. And I think we need to encourage that. Kingsmill Bond, you are such good value. It is always brilliant to talk to you. I always feel both enlightened and inspired. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Always a pleasure. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So I'm here at COP27 with Sapora Berman, who is the founder and chair of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. Sapora, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So you've been involved in environmental activism of various kinds for your whole career, really. Can you tell us a little bit about what has led you to found and chair the the fossil fuel NPT? I've been working on environmental policy and climate policy and environmental advocacy now for about 30 years. And and really, my own decision to start working on this uh, started when I was working in Canada on climate policy because, you know, I really thought in the early years that Canada's emissions continued to rise and we weren't moving forward because we had a government at the time, Prime Minister Harper and the Conservatives, who, who really didn't believe in climate change. And then we elected Prime Minister Trudeau. He came to Paris with his hand on his heart and said, Canada's back. And so many of us were so excited. And he put in place some really good policies, economy-wide carbon tax, you know, zero emission vehicle policies, but our emissions continued to rise. And even under a, a government that believed in climate change and wanted to act, they were still approving more oil sands projects, more fracking, more drilling, even this year off the east coast of Canada. And I started researching, so what are we doing inside the Paris Agreement and, and also a domestic policy to constrain the production of fossil fuels? You know, many of these policies and agreements are about reducing the demand for fossil fuels. And there was a moment when I realized that we don't have those frameworks, either in international agreements or in domestic policy. And so I started researching and looking around the world and, and, and realizing that this was the same problem in Norway, in the UK, in Australia, in Argentina. You know, all over the world, we're having the same issue. We're building more and more and more fossil fuels, which is locking in more emissions, locking in the political power of the fossil fuel industry. And you're making a very important point here, which is we heard from Kingsville Bond earlier about the way the economics is moving against fossil fuels. But you're saying even if the economics is, as it has, moves against fossil fuels and renewables are cheaper for much of the world and even more of the world and they become even cheaper, that isn't enough to get the speed of change we need. That's right. Indigenous leadership and civil society uh, climate justice campaigns have known this for decades. In 2002, they called for stopping the expansion of fossil fuel production. And then the Pacific Island nations in 2015 called for the Suva Declaration. Again, stopping the expansion of fossil fuel productions. But it's like our leaders couldn't hear it because they didn't have a framework. Because climate policy has been designed on a theory that the markets are going to constrain production as long as we reduce the demand for fossil fuels and renewables get cheaper, which they have. But it's not working. It's not working fast enough to keep us safe because the markets are so distorted by fossil fuel subsidies. The OECD and the IEA this year said that in the last year, fossil fuel subsidies in wealthy countries have gone up 51%. And the IMF is saying fossil fuel subsidies are at least $11 million a minute. So every country is trying to keep their industry alive. Every country wants to be the last barrel sold. But this puts the global community in a position where we're now producing 110% more oil, gas, and coal than we can ever burn and stay below 1.5 degrees. So what I've realized is that we're spending our, our financial, our political, our capital 
on digging up stuff that we know that we can't burn instead of putting that money and time and energy into building the world that we want. Now, that takes us to the fossil fuel NPT. Tell us what it's asking for. The Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty has three pillars. The first is for countries to cooperate to end the expansion of fossil fuel production. So no new oil, gas, and coal projects, which is what the science calls for. So the first pillar is stop expansion. The second pillar of the treaty is manage a wind-down according to principles of equity and fairness. So who gets to produce what fossil fuels and how much? Right now, we don't have any framework or international cooperation to negotiate that. And then the third pillar is looking at mechanisms of international cooperation and global governance on fast-tracking solutions. Because what our research is showing is that there are some countries like Ecuador who are just drilling for new oil to feed their debt, even though their own climate policies and indigenous right policies would say that they shouldn't be drilling for more oil. So we need new frameworks to help countries stop expansion. And that also may, may mean a, a new global just transition fund to support countries in the global south so that they don't need to do new expansion of fossil fuels, but instead they can support the infrastructure necessary to decarbonize. Now, our listeners who may be familiar with the language of non-proliferation treaty, and I think I'm right in saying that it evokes the nuclear weapons non-proliferation city. Talk to us about the sort of comparisons of what gave you the heat idea. Yes, well, the world came together decades ago to address what was then the greatest threat to global security, the proliferation of nuclear weapons. In the beginning, nuclear weapons were seen as something that was critical for our security. But the amount of nuclear weapons on the planet could already destroy the planet six times over. So, in fact, the proliferation of nuclear weapons was what threatened us. Today, fossil fuels are our weapons of mass destruction. They kill one in five people globally just from air pollution. And that's not even uh, addressing the issue of climate change. So climate policy is complicated. But the fact is that 86% of the emissions that are trapped in our atmosphere today and smothering the planet come from three things, oil, gas, and coal. So they are today our weapons of mass destruction, the greatest threat to our security. So the three pillars of the fossil fuel treaty are designed after the three pillars of nuclear non-proliferation, stop stockpiling, cooperate to manage a wind down, and build a safer future. Now, in terms of your advocacy of this idea, talk to us a little bit about the recent history. About three years ago, I was awarded the Climate Breakthrough Award, which is an award that is given to individuals uh, to to develop new breakthrough climate ideas. No pressure. And, and I had been talking since about 2015 with people about the idea of a non-proliferation treaty for fossil fuels. And so I, I founded a steering committee reaching out to partners and leaders in the global south, primarily in the beginning, types of civil society groups. And... And, and then started reaching out to scientists and Nobel laureates and testing the idea. So we now have 1,800 civil society groups from around the world who have endorsed the concept and are starting to work on the fossil fuel treaty. We have 101 Nobel laureates, including the Dalai Lama, uh, and 3,000 scientists. And, and more recently, faith organizations around the world have joined faith groups representing 1.2 billion people on the planet, and the Vatican has endorsed I think here at COP, one of the most exciting initiatives is health organizations from around the world starting to organize around the fossil fuel treaty. And the World Health Organization, the WHO, has now endorsed as well. We've been approaching cities, and already 70 cities have passed motions at their city councils, including London and Amsterdam, Vancouver, L.A., uh, Calcutta, the largest city in India, and more recently, Belém in Brazil. So we have 70 cities, and that's growing very quickly as well. So, so compared to when you started this, people looked at you as if you were a bit crazy. Is that right? Yes, because for over three decades, people have believed that we don't have to address supply, that countries are only responsible for reducing demand and their own emissions. But we all know here that that's not working. Emissions continue to rise. And, and we believe that's in part because we're locking in more and more fossil fuel expansion. So the initiative is only 24 months old. We, we launched two years ago, and it was a bit like being shot out of a rocket. It's, it feels like it's the right idea at the right time. 
And, and now every day we're finding out about people working on the fossil fuel treaty from all over the world. Our website's been translated into over a dozen languages. And what's really important is in September, Vanuatu became the first country to propose the treaty on the floor of the UN General Assembly. And here at COP, Tuvalu, another Pacific nation, proposed the treaty here during their speech on the floor of COP27. They're two of the most vulnerable countries. Historically, the point when a country proposes a new treaty, landmines, chemical weapons, nuclear, on the floor of the UN, it takes maybe two to three years before that treaty um, becomes a reality. So this moment uh, is a critical turning point for on fossil fuels. The next question I was going to ask is about power and the exercise of power. I'm sure you're one of the fossil fuel company's favorite people following this proposal. What has their reaction been? And talk to us about the role of political power, because in a way, implicit in your argument or explicit in your argument is the market on its own won't make this change, even when renewables are cheaper. And that is about power, isn't it? It is about power. And it's also about the the kind of social license of the fossil fuel companies and how they are distorting climate policy. They're, they're holding, in a sense, they're holding climate policy hostage. So the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty is providing a big tent. It's building power of people who, who, who believe we should put the brakes on that industry. So while the big companies like Shell and Exxon and BP talk a good talk about climate change, recent studies by Influence Map and others have shown that they're spending about 80% of their advertising budget talking about climate change and renewable energy. They're spending less than 2% of their, their capex on solutions of renewable energy. So these companies today are spending 98% of their capex to build more of the problem. So we have 20 companies right now, the 20 largest, who have 930 billion in new oil and gas projects planned in the next five years. Those same companies have spent literally millions of dollars lobbying to weaken climate policy. And the most depressing thing here at COP is that you have more oil and gas company representatives here on country delegations than you do the, the representatives from the 10 most vulnerable countries of the world. As long as they are here negotiating our agreements and our climate policy, and they're on the committees at a, at a domestic level, then they will always push to expand fossil fuels under false premises that we're going to be able to use technology and planting trees, uh, carbon storage to allow expansion. But we need to make sure that we're cooperating for a just transition, a plan on how we're going to get off fossil fuels. And if we do that, it will be a more managed decline instead of an unmanaged decline, a boom and bust. And that means that workers and their families and communities won't be left behind. What's the sort of long-term vision? The dream here is countries getting together and signing this treaty? Yes, absolutely. And we already have several countries who have announced their endorsement and several more who are, who are planning it. So there's now 600 elected officials from 67 countries that have signed on to the principles of the fossil fuel treaty and they're organizing conversations as well. The fact is, if we're going to get to a fossil fuel treaty, the journey matters and we need to start having the right conversations. But I think it's going to happen very quickly, Dan. Okay, well, look, Sapora Burbot, it's an incredibly important idea, and we're really grateful to you for joining us here from COP. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm here at COP27 with Mohamed Addo, who is the head of PowerShift Africa. Mohamed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. Let me just ask with a more general question before we get into fossil fuels and so on. How, how are you feeling about the COP so far? We're talking here on, uh, on Tuesday afternoon. I'm really disappointed. This was meant to be an African COP one that advances African and other vulnerable countries' priorities. And we haven't seen much progress. Uh, the, the developed countries still are avoiding taking any responsibility and providing leadership, particularly on climate finance. We heard from Sapora Berman there uh, about uh, the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. Are you a supporter of that? What does that mean for developing countries? Uh, just talk to us about your perspectives. No, I'm fully supportive of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. If you look at this process, for the last 13 years, we've been talking about preventing dangerous climate interference and dangerous climate change. And we found, rather than emissions being dropped and, and for the world, we're on a pathway to 1.5 degrees. Emissions are increasing 
We now uh, on a path to 2.7 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And there's no mention of fossil fuels, so we can actually address the climate problem unless we actually end the expansion of fossil fuels. I come from the continent of Africa, a continent that has over 650 million people without electricity. And, you know, the priority of the continent of Africa is to address the, the challenge of limited access to energy. This is a continent that is incredibly blessed with the renewables. We can become, you know, the renewable energy superpower. And, and so the opportunity we have in the continent of Africa is, is for us to actually chart an alternative development path that allows us to address the intersecting crises around climate change, development and energy access at the same time uh, and do it in a way that is climate compatible. If you look at emissions today, you know, I think I'm right in saying that Africa produces a very small percentage of the global emissions and it's the worst affected continent by the climate crisis. The cruel irony of climate change is that those who have emitted the mist, who have lived in complete harmony with nature, are the ones who are suffering first and worst. And these very people are willing to actually contribute to solve a problem that they bring costs. And, and they're doing this in the interest of the global community. And what we're asking of the global community is to recognize that the climate victims are becoming the true climate leaders. And to what extent is Africa transitioning towards renewables and to, to what extent are fossil fuels still the dominant new mode of production? I'll t give you the example of my own country, Kenya. 93% of our energy is from renewables. And our president, Ruto, committed Kenya to 100% renewables by 2030. And, and that is ambition for majority of African countries. But since the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the resulting dash for gas in Africa as a result of the energy crisis in Europe, what we're seeing is foreign companies and foreign countries, together with our political elite, wanting to actually force Africa to pursue a fossil fuel-led development path. You know, Africa can actually realize its development aspirations in a way that is climate compatible. And we don't suddenly need Europe that has actually largely developed on the back of fossil fuels and, and caused climate change without facing the cost of doing so, you know, locking us on a fossil fuel path. Uh, if you remember, only last year in Glasgow, the world committed to end fossil fuel financing. Uh, and, and since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it feels like Europe is just waking up to an energy crisis, which is, which is likely as a result of its addiction to fossil fuels and Russia turning the taps off. What we need is international cooperation, solidarity, the kind that will help Africa address its energy poverty and actually become a renewable energy exporter. In the UK, renewables are now much cheaper than fossil fuels. Uh, it, that's presumably it's the same in Africa too, yeah? The challenge we have uh, in the continent of Africa is around the cost of capital. Yeah. Uh, renewables are largely cost competitive with fossil fuels. But the challenge in the continent of Africa, because for renewables you need a huge capital uh, at the beginning to actually develop the infrastructure. And if we don't reform the Bretton Woods institutions uh, to actually help the risk investment in Africa, there is no way Africa will be able to attract the kind of investment that are needed to deliver you know, renewables at scale. We need to actually increase our energy production. And, and we are at a crossroads. We can become a renewable energy leader and an economy that is largely green and, and, and society that actually benefits from that. Or we can become a large polluter like the rest of the world. It's the opportunity that we want to actually draw to African leaders. And, and this is why you know, African civil society are mobilizing actively through campaigns like Don't Gas Africa and through the fossil fuel non-politification duty so that we can actually help this continent uh, develop in a better way. And you made a really important point earlier about the reform of the international institutions. And I know this is quite a technical subject, the so-called Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF and the World Bank. You know, it's possible to mobilize finance from those institutions to really help Africa make this renewables leap that you're talking about. Absolutely. You know, if you remember, you know, in the reconstruction of Europe, those bonds played a big role. Uh, but they're not fit for our current times. And so what we need is sudden reforms so that they can actually help uh, de-risk the investment that are needed in the developing world and, and make the cost of capital, you know, 
language affordable, particularly for the developing nations. If you look at the cost of interest in Africa, it's almost 10 times what it is in the UK. And, and if you're going to take loans to help solve a problem you didn't create in the first place, the international system has actually helped provide you the support. And, and the support we're asking for here is, is likely to help make the financial system work for the better of the planet and for the people of this world. The continent of Africa and has, you know, majority of its population without electricity attracts less than 2% of the renewable energy investments. Uh, so there's no way you know, we can win in this battle and, and be able to tackle climate change unless we can actually unlock serious financial support and technological cooperation uh, in the world in a way that we can actually be able to scale up investment in renewables. And your figure of 2% is very striking because it's not like there isn't massive potential for renewable energy in Africa. There is yes. massive potential, yeah. I mean, when you think about solar, for example. This continent is incredibly blessed with renewables. Yeah. It's not a question of whether we have the renewables yeah. uh, potential. What we don't have is the international cooperation that will help the world, you know, confront the climate crisis and deal with it in a way that we can actually secure, you know, life on this and, planet. But let me ask you this question: Why is the private sector not trying to then invest in these things in Africa if there is such a plentiful supply? The challenge we have in the continent of Africa. It is largely around uh, risks, and, and, and this is where the IMF and the World Bank comes in. If they can help the risk investment in Africa, you can actually be able to have private sector coming in and, and helping this continent realize this potential, but more importantly, help the world realize you know, the efforts that are needed to help contain climate change. And this is where public money comes in. What we have is a cl global climate challenge. Uh, if you look at the developed world, I think it's home to about 20% of the global population. But these countries account for nearly three-quarters of the historic emissions that have caused climate change. They've promised, if you remember, 100 billion yeah. that was promised 13 yeah. years ago, hasn't been honored. What we need is now a reset of the climate talks so that we can actually build global solidarity and realize that we're in this together. What last question from me, which is there is an optimistic story here, isn't there? Which is you've got 650 million people, I think, in Africa, you said, without electricity. Um, you've got the fact that we've got this climate challenge, which is a global problem and we can only tackle if we all get engaged in it. There is a vision for a better world, isn't there, here? Which is you have the universal access to electricity through clean renewables and it helps to cut our emissions and put us on a sustainable path. And that is a future we want to actually draw people to. We have a better future for not just Africa, but for the whole world. If we have the, the poorest continent, but also the most vulnerable continent, leading in the global effort to tackle climate change, electing to leave its fossil fuels in the ground and choosing to develop its renewables, we will actually be able to stabilize the climate, we will be able to deliver better development, and better development here is about people's well-being, people's security. All it's asking for is global cooperation. It's not even asking for charity here. We have a global challenge, and we're in we need to solve it together. And, and that is an opportunity with better political leadership that the world can actually seize and Africa can actually lead. Mohamed Adel, it's really kind of you to join us. Thanks so much. Yeah, Thank you. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, we're in the outro. Am I right in thinking you're saving it until we're, we're in person? Sorry? What, whatever lovely trinkets that you brought me back from. Oh, uh, yes. I'm thinking of, what is it, a pyramid and a snow globe, a little cuddly sphinx? Yes, I better go out and buy a cuddly sphinx. <laughs> hmm, sorry, Okay, yes. I know you were busy, but sh surely you weren't so busy that I won't be expecting a, a postcard to drop on the mat in the next couple of days. I think postcards have gone out fast. Do you, can you, we could find out how many postcards were sent, like, in Britain or globally like 30 years ago and how many sent today I bet there's been an absolute drop it's interesting I don't know if they would postal services wouldn't track that presumably but you might be able to glean something from sales of postcards ah. and how many people manufacture them or shops selling them perhaps I would always go on when I would go 
abroad as like when I was much younger, I would always send a postcard to your aunt and uncle. You know, it just was the kind of thing you did. My mum. I still do it a little bit. And I think the sort of people who get really annoyed, and I never do this, but the sort of people who get really annoyed about people posting holiday photos on Instagram, it's surely it's the only, it's the same impulse that people used to have to send postcards. Yes, I suppose that's So true. someone's p- posting a picture of their idyllic beach but holiday. that's slightly got... different, isn't it? No, I don't think it is, because people were sending the photograph of the beautiful view saying, wish you were here. Oh, but yeah, it, must be, it must be the same underlying urge, right? I think it's good to think good of, good of human nature. <laughs> Shall I thank our guests? Yes. Uh, I'd like to thank Bond, Kingsmill Bond. Sapora <laughs> <laughs> <Sir> Berman. <laughs> And Mohammed Adel. I'm not making fun of his name. It's more just, I think it's just such a brilliant name. I think somebody walks into a room and introduces themselves as Kingsmill Bond. You think, oh, um, I take you seriously. I defer to I defer to whatever you say. I, mean, I don't think he goes into rooms and says, the name's Bond, Kingsmill Bond, does he? <laughs> Which is, you know, one of the odder things about James Bond, isn't it? I suppose it is in, 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 in truth, yeah. Uh, and also, I love a good PowerPoint. Honestly, we'll post, I, hopefully, we'll be able to post a link to his PowerPoints. I mean, honestly, his PowerPoints are just brilliant. Also, I, if you're lucky, I'll, that'll be my Egyptian present to you. <laughs> <laughs> a PowerPoint. Uh, thanks to Emma Corsham, who produces all our audio. She uh, she worked hard for us this week, Emma, bless her. Yeah. Uh, and to Rachel Because of Varma. my incompetence uh, is what you're saying, basically. Yes, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. Uh, I was, it was unsaid, but uh, yeah. between the lines. Yeah. Um, and to Rachel Barmer, our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer at Seed, composed the music. James Deacon made our idents, and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.